Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Welcome to the Colton Collective Podcast. Now, here are your hosts, Dave AC and the Sixth Doctor. Hello, everybody. I have a story to tell. It was late one evening, the mists rolling in across the moors, and Dave A.C. said, Hello. <laughs> That's a bad cough you got, Dave. <laughs> oh, keep going, keep going. Yes, I dug oh. him up. I dug him up specially for the show, folks. <laughs> oh. well, at least you know his heart's beating. Yeah, don't use up all your sound effects in one in one shot, sir. No, 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 no. Um, but I am going to be called for today, Dave AC, the Mummy Cooper. I'm going to be your mummy. <laughs> are you my mummy? <laughs> yeah, you are, in actual fact, for today, Ian, made out of six people, Doctor. Ah, there you go. Yes, the, so then Howley has something to worry about because six of them, <laughs> I've got six arms now. <laughs> oh, that's, uh, that's howling, uh, howly wailing tea, by the way. Howly wailing tea. <laughs> All right, introducing the room uh, with supplemental names by Dave AC. <laughs> At the top of the list, Mr. Benjamin Elliott, also known as Dave. Benjamin J. Chainsaw Elliott. <laughs> Hi, Dave. Hi, Ian. Hi, gang. <laughs> My cat says hello too. Don't you? Your know? undead cat? Well, hard to tell. <laughs> I assume you heard her just now. Uh, I do have a living computer now. The oh. undead one didn't make it. Has a stake to its heart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm back, somewhat poor, but back online. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Also joining us is Mr. Charlie P. 79, also known as... Uh, Mike Madison. Is that the right one? From, uh, go on, five points. Is that the right name? Is it Mike Manson or Mike Madison? Are you talking about Manson? Yeah, the Nightmare ones. Oh, 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 Nightmare one? You mean Freddy Krueger? Yeah, no, the other one. Oh, Michael Myers. Michael Myers, you see. There you go. There we go. It does get better from here, folks. Honestly, I'm lying, but it does. It gets better from here. Is that where you're going? 
<laughs> Joining us next is Mr. Dara Skeptical, also known as the Dark Lord. You stupid, pitiful human. After all my instructions, you still do not use my true name. Say it, ape. Say it now. You know my name. I am the Great One. But perhaps you are afraid to admit it. For to use my true name is to accept your fate as a member of the lower orders. But you cannot run from destiny. For now is the end of man. And the dawn of the age of the spiders. Hello. How are you? I can't help being a little turned on, Darth. Well, what are you going to do? <laughs> That's what Halloween is for. From, where's my crystal from Metabelis 3? I think I need it. <laughs> Apparently up the river with Joe. <laughs> there you go. Yes. Along with your face. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh. <laughs> Anyway, moving quickly on, we've already covered a name before, but Dave will do it again. It's Howley T. It's Howley Wailing T. <laughs> at least you oh. didn't try to do something with your last name. <laughs> yeah, that, that's been done to death. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Dave, it's time to lower the blood-soaked cone. Controls, new agent training program, section 3.5, the cone of silence. To activate, simply lower the cone and speak clearly. What? Do not overuse the cone of silence. What? Do not shout in the cone of silence. What? In fact, don't even use the cone of silence. What? It's never worked right. I don't know why we bought it in the first place. The portable cone of silence. What? And joining us under the blood-soaked cone is Logan, also known as... Oh, I haven't done them for those in the silence. If they can't be bothered, I'm not doing that. Mm-hmm. Well, Logan, Logan did his own. Head of yeah. Logan Lecter. Oh, right. And then, okay, then I we think got... we'll just have them as zombies, I think. If they can't okay. phone in, the zombies. Okay, say zombie Bob. <laughs> Z- <laughs> zombie Zivity Pot 69. Oh. And zombie guest eight, zombie eight, yeah. zombie eight. Yes, zombie eight. You, you dropped oh, an arm over there. We can... Surely. What? It's like he says, you know my name. Look up the number. His number is eight. That means he's calling him. <laughs> zombie eight brains. Zombie yeah. eight brains. Brains. <laughs> brains. <laughs> uh, all right, that's the show. Thanks all for coming. <laughs> oh, there we go. Yes, anyway. <laughs> Only one more person to introduce, and that is the zombie typing monkey. I'm not going to say it. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. Rebellion. Ah, <laughs> oh, they don't behave, I tell you. They don't behave. Back in the dungeon. I don't know. You put an ice hockey ma- ma- uh, mask on someone and they just go all funny on you. <laughs> That's Jason. Is that Jason? Oh, I give up. <laughs> First up with news is Mr. Benjamin Elliott. Take it away, sir. Ah, okay. Well, um, BBC America is planning a big Doctor Who marathon 
right after the DVD set, DVD Blu-ray set comes out in the U.S. The um, DVDs and Blu-rays are supposed to be out here on about November 9th, and the following Saturday, they've got a marathon, well, they call it Series 5, but they start at 6 in the morning with the end of time in movie format, and then Series 5 begins at 9 a.m. Allegedly, this would be a complete series thing, all the full episodes, with some behind-the-scenes featurettes from the DVDs. In practice, they've got the 11th hour scheduled for a 60-minute time slot when that episode is more than 60 minutes long. So I have my severe doubts. BBC America did recently get into some controversy because of the show Top Gear, where a highly anticipated episode of their uncut season aired at just 45 minutes long, when it was 60 minutes in the UK. They eventually... A number of us complained about this on Facebook and Twitter, and BBC America eventually mentioned that it's because they had a segment in that episode about an F1 racer where they weren't able to clear the segments and the music involved. And so therefore, it was the uncut international version, and therefore they think everything's perfectly fine. But supposedly that's the only episode affected. Now, how this affects whether you whether you think... <laughs> Hopefully this means hopefully this will be the only show affected and BBC America won't have other programs that were expected uncut that suddenly have rights issues resulting in stuff being missing. But Thank you for explaining that because my wife and I were wondering why it was still why why Monday's episode was only an hour long. Yeah, well uh, you know, a number of us complained and I complained a couple of times. They actually put Benjamin in the response to one of the replies. Uh, but I know that People were apparently there were some big fans that episode, and one of the things that they really liked was the segment on this F1 racer. And I'd never heard of this F1 racer, but that obviously, like when you watch the on-demand version, which is usually more complete, whatever they get the camera Diaz and uh, Tom Cruise stuff with the, and they went straight into fake closing credits. They completely mm. that was the end of the show. <laughs> It was just bizarre. <laughs> but supposedly they are not dumping their policy of airing some shows on cuts, if you believe them. Good to know. <laughs> Alrighty then. Some news in text there, Ian. Sorry. Oh, I'm looking. Guest <laughs> 8. Guest 8 has some news that he says, he or she says, uh, one of our regulars who isn't here today would probably mention uh, Towers of Midnight, being book 13 of The Wheel of Time, is released on Tuesday. And if you're a fan of the series and are going to read it, don't read the glossary at the back, as apparently it has spoilers for the book. Right, th- Thank th- thanks much. for that, Mike. Thanks for that, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, okay, I'm confused. But moving swiftly onwards. Mr. Dark Skeptical has some news, some big news, some wonderful news. You well, can't ask for a better build-up than that. I suppose you can't, and then I'm going to speak, and we'll see where that build-up goes. But nevertheless, <laughs> um, there is, as of yesterday, I mean, this is almost breaking news. This is 24-hour-old news, um, breaking news on the MGM front. And as you know, we've been following this tortured story of the downfall of MGM because of its relevance to uh, Bond 23 and The Hobbit. 
And we've noted some movement on The Hobbit in the wake of what we'll call the announcement of the Spyglass Plan. Now, I have talked about the Spyglass Plan uh, a couple of weeks ago. And this is a deal that was announced in September that would install the chairman of Spyglass Entertainment. And I guess the most famous thing Spyglass has done recently has been Star Trek, uh, the J.J. Abrams thing of Star Trek. That's co-production of Spyglass and Bad Robot. And um, they're now going to be the head of MGM. They are, in fact, already the head of MGM. And they're going to turn MGM into exclusively a production company. It's not going to be distribution anymore. It's just going to be production. And that's an important point, and we'll come back to it later. But just know that that plan was approved yesterday. And the plan basically will do this. It will turn the company into a production company only. And it will convert this massive $4 billion debt that MGM has into equity. So everybody who was a debt holder now is no longer holding debt. They're holding shares of stock, essentially, into MGM. So instantly, that's gone. They're going to go through bankruptcy for a, a month. They're going to probably come out on the end of it, and they're going to start again, again, and I'm stressing this, as a production company. Now, MGM's precise relationship with The Hobbit and Bond are different. They have different deals with Peter Jackson than what they have with Eon Productions. I'm going to attempt to explain The Hobbit thing first, but understand, even Peter Jackson himself said last week that he doesn't really understand it all. So... I'm sure this is going to be in some way incomplete, but I think it's roughly right. MGM gets half the profits of The Hobbit. It is, therefore, a co-production partner. It's not just the distribution partner, although it does have international distribution rights, but it is a, an actual co-producer. And according to the LA Times, it's obliged to put $500 million towards the actual production of The Hobbit. Thus, in order to get The Hobbit greenlit, it has to give its approval. And we've been waiting on this official green light forever. That came on the 16th of October because the spyglass plan um, made it very clear that what MGM was turning into was a production company. And it, it seemed to be, in about the middle of the month, it seemed to be likely that the plan was going to be approved by the debt holders. So therefore, even though MGM doesn't have $500 million to give right now, it will have that money after it comes out of bankruptcy. And so because it was looking likely that this plan was going to be approved, basically they were able to say, okay, yes, go ahead and start making the movie. And then you had, of course, this whole business down in New Zealand of the New Zealand Screen Actors Guild and everybody else down there being in a union uproar and you know, Peter Jackson threatening, oh, we're going to leave. We're not going to do it in New Zealand anymore. We're going to go to Europe and do it there. And then finally, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, who I think his name is Key. John um, Key. John Key. He and his cabinet sort of intervened and said, by hell you're going. And so he busted some heads together. And they apparently have come to a deal. So now I think we can say with um, some greater certainty than has ever been attached to this project that it's going to start in February filming, that Martin Freeman is definitely going to be there as Bilbo, that you, know, you have this unfortunate thing of Sylvester McCoy in a minor role. You have you know, um, Ian Richardson, not Ian Richardson, Ian McKellen, um, no longer threatening to leave the project because he's been on hold for too long. So you have looks like the stars are aligning and everything's fine with the Hobbit. Now, with Bond, 
MGM is not, at least as far as I can figure out, actually bankrolling the production. They are the distributors of the film, period. Like, in the same way that Lucasfilm uses 20th Century Fox to distribute Star Wars, Eon Productions uses MGM to distribute their films. But, whereas Lucas was not actually obliged to use Fox for the distribution of the prequel trilogies, Eon are absolutely tied to MGM. Until and unless MGM divests themselves of their rights. Now, Again, because Spyglass, or the Spyglass deal, will convert MGM into just a production company, it will be obliged by the terms of its restructuring to divest itself of its distribution rights to bond. And thus, Eon will be free to shop those rights on its own. So, there's movement again on bond, because now it looks like they're going to be in the position to, say, to Paramount, to say to you know, 20th Century Fox to say to whoever, hey, what are you going to pay us to distribute the Bond films? And I'm sure that somebody will come along and say, what do you want? And so uh, you are starting to see some kind of movement on that project again. For instance, Sam Mendes, who was the rather exceptional choice that was announced back in early, uh, the early part of this year. Um, and then, you know, when it, when it was said that the project was dead and it was, you know, indefinitely on hold, he started looking for other stuff. Suddenly, this other stuff that he was going to look at, they're all saying he's left them. So he, it does look like he is returning to being the active director of this, pro, of this project. And you have Richard Wilson, who, of course, is the sort of, if you will, the showrunner of the Bond films, the chief executive, more or less, of Eon Productions. You know, he's saying last week, well, we're not greenlit yet. I don't want to say that, but things are moving in an encouraging direction. So I think we're back again to, you know, really, truly, this thing probably is going to be shot next year sometime. And whether it goes out under MGM, it's probably not going to go out under MGM, but who cares? It is going to go out. We'll get a new partner. My money's actually on Paramount because Paramount is, you know, a nice production partner with Spyglass, and so even though no longer are, how do I put this, no longer is MGM going to be the distribution partner, um, because the chairman of Spyglass still are the chairman of Spyglass, they're going to use the other side of their job to sort of shunt the, the rights, the distribution rights from MGM over to Paramount, I think. But, I mean, there are plenty of other takers on this. We are going to see, I think, another... Um, Judy Dench, um, Daniel Craig outing. Um, so I, I think that's fabulous. I think that, you know, it's a tragic thing to see one of the greatest studios of all time go down in flames. But at least the two properties that we care about most today do seem like they're moving in more positive directions than they were earlier in the year. Uh, Charles, can I just ask you, is, mm. did Daniel Craig originally sign on for three films? Ooh, that's a good question. I don't actually, off the top of my head, know that. I think he probably did. That's sort of a standard deal with yeah. Bond actors. Um, I, I, let's put it this way. I know he is signed to this film, Bond right. 23. Um, what the parameters of that signing are, I don't know. I imagine there is, just like there was with the um, uh, Timothy Dalton. Three with an option for a fourth, something like that. Well, that was, that was, that was the um, Pierce Brosnan thing, but the... Um, oh. The Timothy Dalton thing, you know, he was signed for a long time. Um, 
and was under their contract for years after Live and Let, um, no, after um, License Hell. to Kill. License to Kill, yeah. He was, he was still hanging. I, and I believe that he, in fact, had to be bought off for GoldenEye. Because, um, you know, he was under a three-picture deal. And they just never got around to making the third one. But, um, yeah, I'm, Daniel Craig is definitely attached to it. And definitely Judy Dench is attached to it. She's already said that a long, long time ago. So, wherever we go, we will be going somewhere. And probably you will see... I don't know. It could. Be, they could at this point go for a 2012 summer release. Kind of. Can I just come on more, quickly? Uh, yeah, sure. Well, there's a reasonably small amount of background noise. Hello. Go ahead. Yeah, have you almost? Have you almost done that? Is that okay? Yeah. Just let him go. Okay. Right. Very very short thing I have to bring you, and I am mobile, so I will lose signal soon. So, um, well, I, I tweeted this earlier today, and basically through a combined set of sources we can confirm that Tom Baker is definitely going to be doing Big Finish. Because in his interview in the latest Doctor Who magazine, he said, it says, Tom has an announcement to make that will delight fans of Doctor Who audio dramas. I'm going to do some more. I'm doing some for Big Finish. And he then goes on to joke about June Hudson doing the cover to the first one. We'll cross-reference that with, uh, I think it's the latest Big Finish podcast, but they did uh, one with Louise Jameson, in which, almost as a side thing, in amongst the conversation, they said that Leela will be his companion in the upcoming audio dramas. Excellent. So, that's sort of hot off the press and kind of cross-referenced through two reliable sources. But uh, I'll I'll leave you to the show, because I'm on a train that's going to start moving and I'll lose signal, so... Good luck with the rest of the show, guys, and I'll okay. catch it in the week. Thanks okay, for the news, thanks, Tim. Tim. What's that? that yeah, thanks, fine, Tim. Thanks. All right. So, um, Darth, do you have anything more to add? <laughs> yeah, on, on, on completely different grounds. We also have a movement on the Flash movie, I suppose. What movement? Who knows? There's been a recent interview with a writer of the Flash movie who is also the same writer as the, the Green Lantern writer. Um, and, it, you know, who knows how much news this is. We haven't talked about the Flash that much, so it's at least news to us. Um, and, you know, he's saying that there are no details. I mean, he's very tight-lipped about what might be happening. But but still, there's, you know, one thing that seems to be emerging, and that is they're definitely using Barry Allen, which is interesting, because Barry Allen, of course, in the comics has been dead for almost 30 years. Um, and he, yet, even though Barry Allen is going to be the one being used, apparently most of the inspiration is going to be taken from um, the Mark Wade run in the comics and Jeff Johns runs, which are runs that have to do with Wally West, his uh, sort of nephew. Um, and, the, and really the Flash that most people know of as the Flash. So they're going to be using some of that sensibility to describe the, the physics of speed, the, the way in which the powers work, the consequence of having the powers. But apparently the movie is going to have a very strong um, sort of CSI element to it, uh, because Barry Allen, of course, was a forensic um, police detective. Um, and so they're apparently bringing some you know, real-life 
kind of gritty police detective work into it as well. So it'll be this blend of um, sort of, it'll be grounded in some sort of reality, I suppose. Right. Um, so it'll be interesting, I suppose. And then on the other side of the, the aisle, we've got the Marvel, uh, Jeff Loeb, who's the um, uh, you know director of Marvel TV, firmly ruling out, I think it was this week or maybe the week before last, uh, firmly ruling out any kind of live-action Avengers, live-action Iron Man, um, live-action Thor. All that's been totally ruled out. And we know a little bit, you know, this is probably going to be this Hulk thing. But obviously they're developing other properties. But it's interesting, it's sort of ruled out from the start that you're not going to see, you know, that basically Marvel TV and Marvel movie are two totally separate divisions, and you're not going to see too much bleed between the two. Okay. okay. Can I just and also there was, there was, uh, on, on, while we're on comic book news, uh, there was also the, the first look at the, the costume for Captain America this week as well. Very good. Right, uh, uh, and the thing I saw in my uh, paper uh, today, but I don't know what, there was a, an article about Superman, uh, apparently the latest Superman comic, Superman is going to be a hooded teenager, um, which uh, not, I don't exactly know anything more than that. I haven't got the paper to hand at the moment, but it showed this uh, vision of a, a scruffy teenager with a, a zip-up hood. Uh, uh, you know, and lots of angst as being the latest incarnation of how they're going to portray Superman, presumably, in the official comic. Is that something you've heard of, Darth? Um, I haven't followed that this weekend, but I wouldn't really, you know, I wouldn't put that much into that. Right. I mean, I don't know. Okay. We're always reinventing stuff. Yeah. All right, uh, joining us late, but here, and we love him being here, it's Graham, the second Doctor Sheridan, also known as Dave. Well, if you're going to be Burke, he could be your hair, couldn't he? <laughs> you need some hair, Ian. <laughs> no, he's got a full, luxurious head of hair, listeners. <laughs> uh, Ian has, not me. <laughs> yeah, I, I could be his hair. <laughs> uh, do you have any news, Graham? Since you just walked through the door. No, uh, not that I know of. Um, the next time, would you please so, open the door before walking through it? Thank you. Um, no, I, I, th- th- this you see, <clears throat> this doctor prefers his uh, fish fingers without the custard. So much for. All right. Well, lastly with news, it is Holy Howling Tea. And <laughs> um, yeah, it's not really proper news, but when we were sort of working it out, we were a bit short, so I thought I could do a brief review of the Institute, which I went to last night because it was. Um, uh, the words have gone. What was I trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> Institute? Because it was appropriate. That was the word I wanted, appropriate. Because, uh, yeah, it's like a horizon thing. Anyway. Um, yeah, I went along to this last night, having been told, oh, yes, it'll be a little bit scary, but only in a jumpy way, and it's funny. <laughs> so off I toddled down to London and got there nice and early and waited with friends. And whilst we waited, we heard screaming come through the wall. And we sort of looked at one of them and went, oh, it's probably just one of the actors, you know, it's, 
I sat the sounded kind of theatrical. It was just it was part of the show because it was one of those where rather than going and sitting down, you go in and wander around and get guided along. And so we just about convinced ourselves we'd be okay. And so off you go in and you sit down and you're given a press conference <laughs> or a pretend press conference by the politician, who then decides, of course, that we should go into this institute which has been closed down since a mysterious and tragic accident a year ago today (laughs) (laughs) so uh, in you wonder it's all a bit dark and scary and on the way in there's a man surreptitiously failing to wipe up blood from the floor and hurried past very quickly (laughs) and um, yes and it's sort of it's one of those things where it all starts to go wrong you know two blokes vanish and we got split into groups to go and find the key and our group was the one there lucky enough <laughs> to find the key still attached to the dead man who had been fairly, well, disemboweled. And of course it all goes wrong from there as sort of zombies attack and uh, you have to run away from them. And I'm not afraid to say that when one grabbed me I did scream. And <laughs> but not as much as my friend who screamed very loud and when one jumped out at her. Lucky zombie. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, um, <clears throat> Obviously, you know, there's one of those things where afterwards you feel, you feel a bit of a prat because you sort of come out and think, well, it's like watching a horror film, except you're in it. Yeah. So it's it's much worse. And you, at the time, you're fully convinced that you're about to die and be eaten by zombies. <laughs> <laughs> and I had a panic attack and nearly fainted, and my friend had to hold me up whilst we ran away. In inverted commas. Um, yeah, that was meant to be a review, and that was more of a ramp. But anyway, just mm. to say, but it's... I believe it's the last night of the run this year, but for anyone who's in London, about Halloween time next year, I expect there will be a third instalment, and it was very good okay. and very scary. <laughs> Excellent. Yep. All right. Thank you very much, Holly. Uh, Dave, do you have any news before we uh, get, well, just get, get, get digging up the main topic? <laughs> just one thing of maybe of interest to people in the UK here today and people later by other means Psychoville returns to our screens uh, tonight on BBC 2 at at 10pm and this is the friends of Mark Gates of course the the ones from the League of Gentlemen uh, Reese Shearsmith and Steve Pemberton I think um, and they're doing it with Dawn French who plays a twisted midwife Joy Aston so that's Psychoville, um, mixture of comedy and horror, but apparently it is quite gruesome in the horror parts. I'd say to that, Dave, if you like... Yeah? Oops, maybe we lost them. The League of Gentlemen. I'm still there. We've got a break in your audio then. Yes. Okay, I should repeat that. If anybody likes... Ooh. League of Gentlemen, a six-parter uh, um, from last, I think it was last year, just about, or beginning of this year. Um, it is absolutely fantastic. Plus, uh, the woman who plays uh, the original six-parter um, series, so it's well worth watching. It's a lot on. We got some of that. <laughs> Every time you <laughs> went to say something interesting, it went away. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's with me, you know, Ian. All the best bits never get onto the podcast. You know, I might sound a bit dull at times, but you miss all the good bits. Yeah, the bit where it's actually funny. Bef- yeah, yeah, yeah. But before we go, let's hear from our friend, uh, Andy. 
If you enjoy listening, why not join the collective and participate yourself? We're on TalkShoe. Call ID 54821. Call in on 724-444-7444. This is a US number, area code 724, so do check your calling plan before dialing in. If you have a zip point, you can call in for free on 66.212.134.192. Or you can connect in directly via the Shoe phone find if you have TalkShoe Live installed. Looking forward to hearing you. Um, Brilliant. Dave, Dave, Dave. Um, yeah. I, I've, I've got to go. There's, there's a guy with a, a chainsaw standing at the door. I, I, oh. I'm really going to go. Ah! <laughs> I think you mute it, folks. Well, thanks, Ian. Thanks for dropping in. And uh, hopefully you'll be in, uh, able to meet us next time. Okay, let's just uh, refresh ourselves. Uh, sorry, I was going to have lots of uh, background music as we played, but my second computer would not. Yeah? I'm terribly sorry, but since you did ask the question about this, this new Superman, before we go on oh. to the main oh, topic. Oh, you found something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're not we're not talking, I didn't think that we were, but we're not talking about a, a wholesale reinvention of the character for the main line. This is a, this is one graphic novel um, uh. called Superman Earth One, um, which by its very title indicates it's not at all in the mainstream continuity. But what they're trying to do is they're just trying to put out a graphic novel that they can put onto, you know, uh, libraries, bookshelves, and on bookshelves in uh, bookstores, so that people can just you know have an, an easy gateway thing um, to pick up and read sort of a new version of Superman. It's kind of like um, the Ultimate line of stuff for Marvel, where you have Ultimate Spider-Man, Ultimate you know Fantastic Four, and all that stuff that wasn't a part of the the ongoing continuity of Fantastic Four or Spider-Man or whatever, but just allowed you to sort of reboot without rebooting. You're rebooting, but you're clearly saying this is not our main line. This is something completely different. And, you know, really, DC's been doing this forever and a day. It's just an imaginary tale, a what if, that sort of thing. Oh, thanks for the clarification. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, right. Um, we're doing um, a Halloween special today. We're talking about the history of horror uh, and the... I put a, cl- uh, a link in there of Mark Gatiss talking about the three-part horror thing that he did uh, on BBC that's just uh, recently finished. You can get it on the BBC iPlayer. Unfortunately, it is region-locked to the UK. Um, But I will be playing a number of clips from it and a slightly light-hearted clip uh, just to start us off with so you know what we're talking about. At their worst, Hammer's films have become disappointingly formulaic as Michael Stile, Lust for a Vampire's producer, made abundantly clear. You need... A lot of murders, a lot of blood, or to five gallons of blood for this picture. You need a good, strong villain, a really villainous-looking villain, a good hero. Look, as you're all so terrified of Karnstein Castle, I'll go up there after lunch. A certain amount of sex, lots of action, and lots of pretty girls, and. uh, and that's your story. That was just a little bit of the tongue-in-cheek to get us going. But let me just uh, play the first bit. Now, uh, this is a vast, vast subject, as I found out as I was doing research for today's show. I have put a link also in the show uh, from um, the best and worst uh, list of horror titles, which uh, 
maybe something that um, we will refer to. And if anybody else in the room has done some research and has a good list of uh, you know the main horror films that have uh, made it to the charts, uh, by all means put that in the text. But I'm just going to play two successive uh, clips right from the start of this three-part documentary. In this and I'm series, going to have to go. I'm going to revisit the three greatest eras of horror pictures and explore what made their finest films so special. I'll venture onto the locations of unforgettable horror moments and invite leading actors, writers and directors to share their stories. Sorry about that, I had to, had to leave and answer the door. Here we go again. I still have very vivid and very happy memories of staying up late in the 1970s to watch double bills of Hammer films and old Universal films. I was always, as my mum used to say, a very morbid child, and I was totally crackers about horror films. I think what always appealed to me most was just the sense of going into a different realm, a realm of shadows and suggestion and spookiness. And because horror is such a personal passion of mine, this series will be unashamedly selective. I'm going to build my account around my favourite films and periods. Okay, well, obviously, we, we can't play hundreds of clips from that, uh, but um, let me just do a quick... Uh, uh, call around the room, <laughs> call, that's not the right word is it, a quick uh, poll around the room and just find out who basically is a real big fan of uh, uh, horror films because you might be asked to contribute rather more than usual. Howley, uh, you're, you, I take it, are a scaredy cat, are you? You don't really like them? Or what? Yes, I'm a massive coward. I panicked this morning when my shower was dripping because it was dripping yesterday. <laughs> 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 okay. Okay, all right, and um, presumably you're not you're not so familiar with the with the uh, the earliest ones. Are you more like to actually catch the the ones on TV rather than at the cinema? Um, yeah, pretty much. The only ones I've seen today, I've seen the whole of the Evil Dead trilogy. My flatmates made me watch it, but that's about it, really. <laughs> okay, um, let's go to Graham because he's just joined us. Graham, are you a massive horror fan? I wouldn't say massive, but I do have the ones that I really like. Um, can you hear me? Yep, can indeed. Yep. Mate, just checking, just checking. So, um, I mean, I do have a, a short list of sort of horror films, and one of my favourites has actually been, well, refilmed with a, um, <clears throat> with the Tenth Doctor at the moment. So, um, the Fright Night, it's the original Fright Night film, plus its sequel uh, in 19, about 1990, 1989, Fright Night 2. Uh, I those. I really uh, enjoy them an awful lot. Um, plus the two, there's two Stephen Kings that uh, from from the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, both have uh, female names as titles. Uh, one is Carrie, um, which is I, I just find absolutely fantastic. And uh, the other one being Christine, the uh, the evil car that comes back. From the oh. Dead, uh, um, which are uh, particular favourites of mine. But there's an odd little one, which um, I really don't like it when they get super bloody. 
uh, you know, blood and guts all over the place. It's not my scene. I, I like more the sort of maybe the, the jumpy sort of thing there, which is, you know, okay, vampires are good, long as it's not sort of ripping people's throats out, all that sort of horrible stuff. Uh, and despite sort of um, the way that this guy usually writes his books and the film Hellraiser, which I really do not like, the first one, I uh, still can't watch it, it's just far too horrid for me. Um, he did have another film that was produced later that was called Nightbreed, based on the book uh, Cabal, uh, which is by Clive Barker, uh, which is sort of a fantastic look. This is like, um, yeah, uh, I hate to mention this, but the Twilight Saga, it's one of those films I just... Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's it's sort of it's got that sort of sloppy, soppy sort of angle on it. And Nightbreed was there doing it before uh, Twilight was even thinking about it. But in that sense, it did it well instead. Um, um, you might, if you ever seen the film, uh, oh, uh, some kind of wonderful. I think I can't remember what it's called. Properly. There's one of the stars, Craig Schaefer, who's uh, who stars as the main role in this film as well. And then you've got um, people coming in from actually from the horror genre uh, themselves, actually starring in the film. Um, not that they've written it. Um, David Cronenberg has a major role in this film uh, as the main proper bad guy because the thing that is, with this is it's a proper sort of Halloween thing the people that you think are the bad guys are not really the bad guys they're just um, some sort of undead sort of creatures that are um, basically just trying to keep away from the normal human population because they'll get hunted and um the David Cronenberg character is a, a sort of uh, is a psychologist and uh, he uses his role as a psychologist to actually uh, set up the main character Boone and to make him look like an, a murderer, but which is not. Uh, he's actually this creature. He ends up becoming this creature called Cabal, which is supposed to be the uh, guy that's supposed to be um, protecting all the the monsters. But uh, in the end, uh, ends up uh, destroying their home. It's a fantastic film, very well made at the time. Also from about 1990. Um, but I say, Evil Dead films. Um, you can't go by without watching Evil Dead films. Um, to be quite honest, the the first two are laughable. Uh, by today's standards, uh, the second actually being my favourite um, of the three films um, is the one I definitely watch the most. And uh, the, the thing interesting with the last part, the um, last part, of the Evil Dead, um, there's actually two different endings to the film. Um, it was quite interesting. Uh, I've seen both endings to the film, and he gets uh, the, the main character um, Ash gets these drops to bring him back into uh, his time, because obviously he's, he's landed in medieval time. And the, the, up to a certain point where he's actually counting the drops, it stays the same. Uh, one, it uh, shows him that he's got back to his proper time, and um, he's slept through to the proper time, and he comes back and he saves his his, his beloved K-marked um, uh, from a, a zombie uh, evil dead attack and the other one is they take the sort of thing that he actually takes one drop too many and wakes up in an evil dead future um, which is another sort of fantastic but there are actually you really can't look at the genre uh, horror and really cut it down to anything it is quite a broad span um, though the funny thing was as I was looking oh it's S-marked Charlie's put up Charlie 79 S-marked well, I, I can't remember 
uh, five points, Charlie. Um, but the, the funny, one of the funny things is um, this week uh, iTunes was doing it special. Now this proves in Germany that they don't really look at what they're putting up, because in the selection of horror films for three ninety nine there was Freaky Friday, and I was just wondering if that film was that bad that it ended up as a horror film rather than the sort of mixed up comedy thing that it's actually supposed to be. Um, but it was really uh, give me a laugh. But uh, yeah, um, I'll give the rest of the room a chance. But like I say the the genre, the genre horror is broad. You can have everything. It was like I was reading uh, one of the magazines over here. It's called FST. It's, uh, um, it's films and technic, uh, technical stuff and games. And in the, they were actually covering this very thing, the the grindhouse uh, genre within horror which is generally a mix-up, and Evil Dead's part of this, apparently, according to this uh, article. Um, but you, literally, you're starting from the beginning of film where things like uh, Edgar Allan Poe um, novels were being turned into horror films straight off the bat, and uh, obvious, the, one of the big obvious ones is Bram Stoker's uh, Dracula being brought out as the original Nosferatu uh, back in the, um, before... Well, way before the uh, proper sort of um, Bela Lugosi version right. in the 30s. So it yeah, is well, a broad genre, but I'll let somebody else waffle on. Well, just uh, pertinent to that point before we go yeah. to Darth next, um, I haven't got, obviously, with a silent one, it's not really, you can't really play an audio clip. So uh, let's uh, hear a little bit about the Dracula one uh, with the Bela Lugosi, I think. 1929 saw the Wall Street crash and the beginning of the Great Depression. Like other Hollywood studios, Universal had cash flow problems, which meant it had to scale down its productions. Fortunately, Junior Lemley came across another, more cost-effective way of telling the Dracula story. Stoker's novel had been adapted for a modest British touring production which had gone on to become an unexpected hit. For ease of staging, this was a kind of drawing room Dracula set largely in a Hampstead house. And the play had transformed Stoker's hairy, mustachioed, rank-breathed count into a more elegant figure who could be welcomed into London society. As for me, I am a stranger in a strange land. Yet I have come to love this great London with its teeming millions, so different from my own land of Transylvania. After all, the walls of my castle are broken, the shadows are many, and the wind breathes cold through the broken battlements. The play ruthlessly cut back the action and locations of Stoker's novel and added rather a lot of talking. But that didn't bother Junior Lemley. Dracula was going to be the first horror picture with sound. And here's Lugosi. The film also took on the play's Broadway lead, a Hungarian actor called Bela Lugosi. I am Dracula. A veteran of Budapest's leading theatres, Lugosi's American career had previously been limited by his accent. Listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. 
Lugosi is somewhat drawn-out delivery. helps render the film's many dialogue scenes rather ponderous. Hollywood was still getting the hang of talkies, and director Todd Browning was on surer ground in the film's wordless sequences. Here, Lugosi becomes a shadowy figure who comes to get you while you sleep. You can see why people might have found this terrifying, and in some cases, illicitly thrilling. Lugosi's charisma aside, the film rarely rises above its stage origins. We never even see a drop of blood or the flash of a fang. Okay, we'll <clears throat> try and talk uh, a little bit more. Let's go to Darth. Uh, big horror fan, Darth? Not really. Um, I suppose it's it's kind of weird because there is this distinction between horror and suspense, but yet sometimes that is, that um, distinction gets compressed, and you you throw things like the birds and the psycho, you know, two great. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock things into horror and I don't think that they really are horror I think that they are suspense instead I, I, mm. I mean I, I appreciate um, films that are suspenseful that don't show you everything that's happening that suggest more than they show um, and I like that I, I, it's not that I'm like particularly squeamish or anything because I, I guarantee you that I've seen stuff that is you know, way worse than what normally gets to American movie theaters. I I, I had a roommate who was really um, into Japanese horror films, and let me tell you, the Japanese horror films are ridiculously gory. Some of the seriously grossest stuff that you've ever seen. And it's not that I'm, you know, propelled by it. It's just that most of the time, the stories I find in in, you know, outright horror, gory horror stuff is just so ludicrous, so uh, unimaginative yeah. almost. Um, it's kind of like vaguely the difference between you know I don't know porn and eroticism. You know, there's I can, I can see the use of porn, I can see the use of horror but the fact of the matter is that better films are made when you don't really go all the way when you just sort of suggest what might be happening. Um, so I don't I don't have that much to say about I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I, I was mildly interested by this um, Mark Gatiss thing that you keep quoting from. Um, and, it, you know, fine. There's a, some stuff that's there. And I guess in a way you can't know film history unless you go a little bit into the horror genre. Um, but, I still don't think that the things that have been really the most successful in this category have really been things that are truly gory. I don't know. I don't really honestly have that much of an opinion about this stuff. Yeah, yeah, I understand. I'm with you on that. And um, although I haven't, uh, one of the things I've been mentioning to Ian tonight is that like we've done the from the mind of Terry Gilliam and and so on. Um, I'm, I'm thinking that we perhaps could. Uh, treat Hitchcock in a similar way because I wouldn't put him in this and yet I think some of the films are quite frightening if you've ever seen The Stranger uh, mm. with Orson Welles and um, mm. uh, Edward G. Robinson I mean yeah. that that is brilliantly suspenseful I thought uh, and Menace is there and so on was, uh, I mean to me I uh, that's about as far, far as 
I like it. And then one of the ones that I think gets might get mentioned because I'm not going to play all the clips I've got. Um, but is the Night of the Demon with Dana Andrews, um, which is an all black and white one, which is mostly suspense, and uh, you only really see the monster right in the last closing minutes. And some people would say that that was a mistake. Anyway, but um, I, I'm jumping ahead. Let's go to uh, Charlie. Um, Charlie, what, what's your... Th- these are just general thoughts before we get into particular movies, maybe. Um, well, I, th- well I, m- I remember watching you know, the Universal movies, Universal horror movies from the 30s, 40s, I guess, no, I mean, 50s, um, you know, when I was... Younger, probably around you know ten or so, nine, ten, 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 and then um, it just you know I sort of just worked up my way up, you know, going to the library and reading. Um, there was this, there was this, um, uh, this series by Crestwood House that had uh, you know they talked about the they had the, they, went, they went from like Universal they talked about the Hammer movies they talked about the Japanese monster movies like Godzilla and and just you know you read about them and you watch them and, and then, um, yeah. So, so, so I was like, you know, as, as younger, I, 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 I tend to like the, the universal, the thirties universal horror movies. Right. And, um, you know, this is around the time when, you know, by the 13th is out and every, I think, you know, kids my age will, will try to watch, will watch those. And I was watching, you know, Bride of Frankenstein and Invisible Man and such. And, um, you know, maybe you know, like, like a little bit later, you know, I would watch. You know, like I said, I've, I've seen the Evil Dead movies. I've seen the George Romero zombie movies, and and you know, this this month I've been watching movies. I watched, you know, there was there was that um, Swedish vampire movie they called Let the Right One In. That I thought that was was pretty good. That came out a year or two ago, um, and a, a movie from a monster movie from South Korea called The Host, which I thought was, which I, which I liked. It was, it was more than a monster movie, but um, yeah, I mean, it just, it, I think I, I, I you know, like I said, I, I, well, you know, I, I know about gore, about if, you know, there are, there, there are movies that, you know, turn me off if, it, if it's, if it's too gratuitous. But yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, you know, I think overall, yeah, I'm a fan. Okay, well, let me just play a couple of clips, then we'll go to Benjamin. Uh, uh, this is um, uh, Boris Karloff. Uh, I'm going to jump a few. I might actually get to Bride of Dracula uh, after uh, we've heard from Benjamin, but this is uh, Boris Karloff. But exactly who was alive under all those bandages? Universal originally wanted Bela Lugosi to play the creature, even promoting the film with him in the role before it had been shot. But after what would now be called creative differences, Lugosi left the project. The picture was handed to an up-and-coming English director, James Whale. He needed to find a monster, fast. Sitting in the Universal Canteen one day, Whale spotted a fellow diner and beckoned him over. Your face, he said, has startling possibilities. The owner of that face was another expat Englishman whose birth name was William Henry Pratt. Pratt's distinctive features owed something to Indian blood in his family. After more than two decades of theatre work and bit parts in films, he'd become resigned to never having a major role. His stage name was Boris Karloff. 
And uh, uh, there's another part in there where they say that, um, uh, obviously, the creature's not actually bad at first. He's childlike. Uh, but then um, uh, one of the scenes is that um, he goes out into, uh, he escapes out, and he comes across a young girl um, near the side of a lake, and she's throwing like little petals, uh, heads of flowers, into the water, and they're floating like boats. And so uh, the monster starts copying her. And then, you know, the giggling, and then he picks the girl up and throws her in, childlike, thinking, well, I wonder if she'll float. Uh, and, of course, she drowns. But apparently that scene, the sense is cut, and um, uh, in most of its first showings, um, that part was, uh, was, was never shown until 50 years later, I believe. So let's go to Benjamin, because we're just on an initial one, and then I'll go to that bride clip for uh, Charlie. Uh, Benjamin. Hi, Dave. Just general thoughts. Are you a horror fan or? Uh, the some horror stuff, you know, it's uh, I suppose it depends on the mood. I think um, I was introduced to it the way most people were introduced to it in my generation. Young Frankenstein repeats on television. <laughs> it, yeah, I know. Young Frankenstein isn't strictly speaking a true horror film. It is a comedy that was a loving pastiche of these early horror films. But you, and one thing I did pick up from it was that I tend to like the film. It can't just be horror for me to really like it. There has to be some sort of a story, and they have to be doing something interesting. It can be comedy. It can be some really scary concept. But you can't just have gore, or you can't just have... There has to be something to the film for me to really like it. But right. so, no, go like on. I think I've, hmm? Go on. I'm I thought sorry. you were breaking up. I thought you were breaking up. It's okay. No, I'm still I'm still here. But like the um yeah just last night, because my my wife discovered it was airing on television, I saw Dracula Dead and Loving It for the first time. And it's not certainly not the greatest of Mel Brooks's films, but there again you had a bit of a horror film, and I'm surprised at how seriously he did take the premise. But it's like you had you had the the way they did the horror. You they chose an interesting way to do the blood and everything, and it flopped when it came out. But for something watching on a Saturday night, it was a pretty good evening. And I remember I saw Saw a few months ago, the first Saw, because one of our cable channels was airing it. And maybe I just tuned it the wrong place or something because Saw just seemed like there was too much. You had gore, gore, and it wasn't really going anywhere. It's mm-hmm. like I couldn't see the point. Now, other, I'm sure other people did see the point. Obviously, Saw has been a really successful franchise, and I believe Saw 3D is probably going to be the biggest film this weekend in the U.S. box office. But I guess it just it really depends. Like a good scare is can be good. It doesn't. You can have blood or not have blood. It just you have to do some. You have to try to do something interesting. And obviously, interesting is subjective. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's a lot of psych- um, what's the word psychology about 
horror films as well. I mean, seeing it in a theatre with other people and, and the effect that that has. And um, also, the um, you can't discount the fact that teenagers like to go out because uh, uh, they might get grabbed during... <laughs> <laughs> they might get grabbed during the scary bits. <laughs> Let me. Kill, uh, Kill Bill was Kill Bill. In spite of oh. how gross it was, I was able to watch that. But I wound up seeing the second one on DVD first. <laughs> so, mm. But I was able to watch Kill Bill, in spite of the fact that the level of gore was usually more than I would be able to take, because it got me interested in the story, and I was caught on to the story. So. If I thought that the gore might, if it looked like the gore might make me want to leave or something, it's like, ah, then something interesting would happen with the story. So I, I think the gorier the film is, the more important it is that it has other features to grab the attention. It's like, it, you have to balance that. You have to have some sort of a balance. <laughs> right, okay. Let me play this clip for Charlie then uh, about the bride of. Uh, Bride of Frankenstein, sorry. In Bride of Frankenstein, Whale makes the monster an even more sympathetic victim of a brutal society. But Whale's main focus of interest in the film seems to be neither the monster nor Frankenstein, but a new character, a masterly camp creation. He's a very queer-looking old gentleman, sir, and must see you. On a secret grave matter, he said. Tonight, alone. Bring him in. Henry, who is this man? Dr. Pretorius. Baron Frankenstein now, I believe. Pretorius was played by Ernest Thesiger, an old friend of Wales from his theatre days in England. Alone, you have created a man. Now, together, we will create... His mate. You mean... Yes. A woman. Resplendent in Jack Pierce's Nefertiti-inspired makeup, she's a perverse idea of womanhood. The pride of Frankenstein. A stitched-together combination of daughter and mate, the bride is beautiful in a wholly insane way. And just to remind people, uh, next week we're going to be doing about uh, the music, uh, sci-fi music from films and TV. And one of the things I noticed when I was gathering all these clips, the, uh, how, how well the music works towards, you know, building up suspense or, uh, you know, uh, the creepy scenes before certain things. And um, I'm going to skip the, the next clip, which I was going to play, but um, one of the weirdest films that one of my friends used to always tell me about, because it was banned for about 30 years, and it was called Freaks. Uh, where they actually used not makeup, but they actually used people from a circus. There were these people w which literally had pinheads and and one or two others, and it was a story about them, you know, um, the the community that they had. But this uh, young, uh, there was a. We call, you don't call him a dwarf now, but in the film he was called the dwarf, um, a person of short stature who who loved this uh, the girl the the the, uh, the lovely girl of the actual circus, uh, but she treated him very badly. So in the end, all the um, group, the troop of the thing, um, 
turn on her and then the whole film goes into a very sort of nasty thing it's called the freak so it, it's not a very wide release but a very strange film but um i'm now going to tell you uh, mark gates is going to tell you a little about about this build up with the music and um, something called a Luton bus no studio looked more enviously at universal's money-spinning menagerie of monsters than rko Yes, the same RKO which made Citizen Kane and needed to make quick cash following that magnificent flop. Across the centuries comes this exciting story of a modern girl cursed by an ancient legend. The legend of the cat people. During the early 1940s, RKO released a string of sensationally titled horror pictures. But the actual films showed a subtle mastery of the psychology of horror that was quite revolutionary. All were produced by Val Luton, who was appointed head of the RKO Horror Unit in 1942. Luton's budgets were tight, and his boss's policy was to choose a commercially sounding title first and then commission a screenplay to fit. But within these limits, Luton was given a free creative hand, and he played it very cleverly. Luton's first horror picture was Cat People, the story of a woman who turns into a panther when caught in the throes of passion or jealousy. The film's most celebrated set pieces show her love rival being stalked. Luton realised that his restricted budgets weren't a disadvantage, because in horror, less could be more. Monsters didn't have to be seen, just suggested. He also understood that a good shock didn't have to be caused by something explicit or even intrinsically frightening. That technique of a slow build-up followed by a sudden but unthreatening jolt has become known, appropriately enough, as a Luton bus. And that's where they, I mean, they've used that in Alien, haven't they, where you think the monster's coming out and it turns out to be a cat. Uh, Graham hasn't got long with us. Graham, do you want to just uh, throw a few thoughts in before you have to go? Yes, um, two films that I did forget and why I forgot them, I don't know. Um, both starring the same actor. Um, the 50s... Uh, films, um, The Last Man on Earth, and also The House on Haunted Hill, uh, which is another one that I've watched in its newer version as well. Plus, the there's another another new version of that, but that's part two, and it wasn't as good as even as good as the uh, the first um, remake. But uh, yeah, the two that I before I go, I, I recommend. Most definitely, uh, The Last Man on Earth, which is the uh, probably the first, I think, as far as I can recall, it's the first uh, time that uh, I Am uh, Omega, or um, oh, I Am Legend. I Am Legend. Was, I am legend. Was, yeah, I Am Legend was originally filmed, and it's probably the first uh, version of it. The Omega uh, Man, yeah. Uh, Mega Man uh, also coming directly on the heels of that as well, um, which came not long after it. Uh, also another black and white, uh, but that and House on Haunted Hill, uh, two great classics from the 50s that I highly recommend to anybody uh, want to sort of uh, have a 
a nice easy way into the horror genre. Yeah. Uh, do you want to just give a quick shout out to your 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 own show if you have to leave in a moment? Yes. Uh, first of all, the Second Doctor's podcast. Uh, that's also here on TalkShoe, um, which is uh, 57949. Um, this time round, I'll be doing the Web of Fear, it being Halloween, and I want to do a Doctor Who topic. Um, so why not something Second Doctor-like? And most of that period was a... Uh, well, Victoria uh, Waterfield's period was mostly horror anyway. And also Professor Howe, uh, the Doctor Who parody podcast, which is on 59601. And you follow me on Twitter as well, at the 2ND Doctor. That's the number 2ND Doctor. Thanks very much, Dave. And it's been okay. great to be here again. Yeah, we get our podcast up pretty quick, but your show might be pretty well on its way by the time we go online. But uh, they can catch you another week and listen to that one yeah. uh, on iTunes, I'll take it. Yep, on iTunes and also over TalkShoe as well. Cheers. Bye for now. Oh. Okay, cheers. Thanks for that. Uh, and talking about uh, just going, uh, if I can bring Charlie back in on this one, um, that when he mentioned the IR um, legend, and I think it was you that mentioned about uh, things having more than one ending. Was it you? Because uh, when I got the DVD of I Am Legend, they had two blooming endings to it. It's as though they don't know how, which horse to back, you know, as though there's some indecision. I never know whether that's a good thing with a, a, a DVD, whether you get alternate endings or not. In one sense, it, I suppose it's good because you get you get two versions. On the other hand, you're thinking, well, perhaps they didn't know what they were doing in the first place. Yeah, was well, it you? Yeah, was it you, Charlie? You mentioned about different no, that endings. Was, that, that was Graham. He talked. That was the whole um, oh. the dead movie, of Army of Darkness. But that was whole. That oh. was that was two different versions because um, the American version of Army of Darkness got the uh, got the happy ending and. The European version of Army of Darkness got the uh, the um, sort of, sort of the, the the tragic ending where he sleeps too too long. But the whole the whole thing with alternate endings that probably has to go down with, with test audiences and everything like that. If they don't like an ending, then you know you know they they, they end up uh, shooting a new one. So uh, yeah, that's that's most, most, mostly down to the politics. Okay. Okay, uh, right. Well, I'll put a little clip in then, and if um, just check and see if is Howley T back in the room yet? Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'll just play in the clip. This is from the second of the uh, the uh, how, uh, the history ones, and this is uh, where we're going to the start of start of the Hammer period, really. Ray Studios, the home of Hammer Films. A very annoying idea has grown up that Hammer films are always made tongue-in-cheek, that they almost defined camp. In fact, the opposite is the case. In the early days, at least, Hammer played their horror very straight indeed. In their early days, Hammer mostly made films based on popular radio dramas. But in 1954, they turned to television, creating the film version of the BBC's hit series, the Quatermass Experiment. Science fiction, the very genre that seemed to have killed off horror, was about to revive it. Victor Caroon is an astronaut who crashes to Earth alive, but infected. A fantastic performance by actor Richard Wordsworth makes his transformation into an alien life form both affecting and hideous. Is it something to do with your arm? 
Well, Carl, just take a look. I won't hurt it, I promise. And it was this added horror that helped to make the film an X-rated hit. And if you want to think of the makeup, think of if you've ever seen The Fly, um, the uh, the Goldblum version, I think it is. His hand is like a like a fly's hand. It's uh, so for the day it was quite gruesome. Um, so Howley, um, anything that you've thought of in the meantime? Are you, uh, because uh, I know you said you don't like really gory ones, but uh, you put a couple of things in text while we've been talking. I mean, anything that springs to mind? Um, so not especially. There were just sort of a couple that came to mind. But since having got to uni, my flatmates are in the mood of won't take no for an answer. So <laughs> I have sat through two halves of two different sort of films. I say sat through. I spent most of them hiding and kind of cringing because they're horrible. Um, they've made me sit through Battle Royale. That was fairly horrible as well. And all three of the Evil Dead films, which I only cope with because they're just funny. <laughs> to, yeah, I'm not particularly good at coping with horror films, especially not the gory ones. Right. I don't quite see the appeal in frightening yourself for entertainment. But yeah, each to their own. Yeah, I think probably the ones that were made in the 60s and 70s you will find, you know, enjoyable because they've sort of uh, there were limits on what they could do. So um, quite a lot of um, it's suggested. I mean. Uh, uh, in one of the clips, like where Peter Cushing, well, no, I won't, I won't go into that because I can't play too many clips. It, it would be silly. Just a clip show, and uh, we don't want that. Uh, let's go see if Darth has any more comments, and then, then I'll go to another clip if needed. Unfortunately, we've lost Charlie at that point as well. Uh, Darth? Okay, well, while Darth gets his audio, let me just go, and I'm going to jump, because um, one of the things that happened is that they, they also realised that, um, uh, l like you said earlier, the, some of the people were getting a bit um, uh, staid about just plain um, horror, so um, towards the end of the Hammer period, uh, they started to get a little bit more either camp, or indeed, some of them got a little bit sexy. This was the first mainstream film to give its vampires proper fangs. Fangs that were dripping with blood. Dracula. And daringly, Dracula appeared interested in more than just his victims' necks. For the censors, Hammer's apparent obsession with blood and gore was bad enough, but the introduction of a strongly sexual element caused them moral consternation. It is important that the women in the film should be decently clad. I would add that anything which cross-emphasizes the sex aspect of the story is likely in a horror subject of this kind to involve cuts in the completed film. This scene, in which Mina awaits Dracula in her boudoir, particularly troubled the censor. Real eight. There is still a strong sex element in this scene. This is due to Mina's anticipating expression in close-up and Dracula's face and expression as it hovers over Mina's before he applies himself to her neck. We are doubtful whether this sex element can be removed. 
cut the scene from immediately after Mina gets on the bed to shot of owls screaming. But Hammond didn't make the cut, claiming that no sexual subtext was intended. And I think I'm going to scream because um, we've unfortunately, as you heard, Graham uh, had to leave to do his own show. Uh, Charlie P79 uh, got uh, abducted by aliens, and at the same time, uh, Mr. Darth Skeptical, um, the uh, the Dark Count, ha- had to disappear as well. So, um, Benjamin. Um, can I go to you now, as uh, we may be uh, wrapping up rather soon, sooner than I thought. And I'm a mummy, and I should have known that. Oh, there are only three of us in the room right now? With audio? No, we've got plenty. We've got plenty of listening. Uh, we've got Cybob. Um, oh, I can never pronounce that name. Alorin, Dice, Guest 9, Zibnipot, um but unfortunately, they, they're not on mic. If they would like to try and get in on mic, that would be great. The number to call in, as you heard at the beginning, was um, uh, if you're using a SIP client, 66.212.134.192. If you're in America, it's um, 724-444-7444. And if anybody there in text is in the UK, if they just put the hand up, um, I can give you a UK number that they can call in, assuming you have free evening calls. So, Benjamin, yes, we're, we're, we've got our backs to the wall, and the mummies are coming for us. Uh, well, um, I noticed that he does seem very much focused on British horror, which makes sense. Um, uh, yeah. Well, uh, the, the, I, I, the actual fact, this the third one does go back to America. Uh, I mean, I can uh, if you if there's any you mention, and I've got a clip for it, I will move to that. Um, but this was the middle section where he was doing the sort of the golden years where it had moved to colour, and of course uh, Peter Cushing and um, Vincent Price were the sort of uh, the mainstays of uh, British uh, horror at the time. You know, all the Witchfinder general ones and so on. Hmm. Yeah. Well, one, if one thing I noticed a lot with the more recent films is, at least with in America, is that there's been a big effort to try to drench. Like you want to set the horror, they want to have the horror film, but they want to try to set it in a very American situation. Like if you remember a few years ago, the first of the Ginger Snaps movies, where Ginger was this. Um, teenage girl who didn't fit in and stuff and she had a sister who didn't fit in and she's living this perfectly dull life as this flopping teenager and then she gets bitten by a werewolf and they just built the premise from there. But it seems like you have these things where you try to have people who are supposed to be very ordinary what they think modern people are, like uh, Scream. You have you have what's supposed to be a perfectly ordinary group of people and you bring them into a horror situation. There seemed to be a big effort to get up. Whereas many earlier films had tried to involve themselves in more European storylines or in the past. There seems to be a big effort to just have stuff in the present day. Right. Well, I'll tell you what we'll do. Uh, well, after um, all, uh, look at Sherlock. The new Sherlock, which is set in 2010. Absolutely. Yeah. What I'll do is I'll skip a lot of this middle history and I'll, I'll just go 
quite quickly, if I may, through three particular ones that I did want to include. So I'm jumping a great length of the, the, the hammer things. And then what I will do is um, we'll have a little look at the, um, and I'll put the chart back into the thing. We'll have a little look at that chart. And I put it in now so that the people that are not on mic can perhaps just uh, see if they agree with them. Um, well, actually, it's a rating um, thereby voting from the internet internet movie database and if anybody's listening to this recording later perhaps I should say the address it's www.imdb.com forward slash chart forward slash horror and we will look at that later but I'm going to go very briefly through three clips uh, because I thought they were quite important ones um, first one is one that was uh, made it to cult status uh, and that is the wicker man so I'll play a little clip of that from the late 60s, a new generation of British directors avoided the gothic clichés by stepping even further away from the modern world. Amongst these are a loose collection of films which we might call folk horror. They shared a common obsession with the British landscape, its folklore and superstitions. <coughs> Witchfinder General, directed by Michael Reeves, took us back to the witch hunts of 17th century East Anglia. It may have cast horror legend Vincent Price in the lead role, but this was new territory, dark and nihilistic. Without a doubt, the best known of this group of films is The Wicker Man. Set on idyllic summer isle, it pits the pagan islanders against the upstanding Christian hero with its horrific conclusion played out in daylight. Oh, God! Uh, there's quite a bit of... Uh, one of the things about playing these clips, of course, is that we have a general rating, all rating, on this show. So I've had to try and... Uh, concentrate more on the history of it. Now the next one is one that I hadn't heard of but I wanted to play it for a very important reason um, and it's called, oh let me get the, the right name here again um, The Blood on Satan's Claw because it has a young Wedney Pabri in it, although you won't well, you'll hear a scream, but you won't, you won't know she's in it from this clip and I think she did it um, in 19... I think it's just after she left Doctor Who. So it's either 69 or 71. Uh, 1971. Uh, and let's play a little bit of this. But there's another film which I think deserves much wider appreciation. What makes it so special? Well, let's just say there aren't many films set in the reign of William and Mary in which the devil rebuilds his body by harvesting the skin of children. The film is Blood on Satan's Claw, and its director, Piers Haggard, also drew inspiration from the countryside of the home counties. When the devil rises up and takes hold of an innocent rural community, kind of a horror film were you setting out to make? Uh, this is very interesting, this. Um, I think that I, I did was tried to make a folk horror film in a way because we were all a bit interested in witchcraft. We were all a bit interested in free love. 
the rules of the cinema were changing and nudity became possible, indeed, altogether possibly over-prevalent, because the lid had slightly been taken off. But things go well beyond the 60s fad for nudity when it comes to the film's most disturbing scene, a violent and protracted rape. They've all gone absolutely start raping bunkers, and, and it is a, about a breakdown, complete breakdown of, of, of values. And it's me, Zoe, that's been attacked. Oh, shucks. Um, but again, you heard some beautiful little music in the background. So um, that basically brings... Um, Benjamin, as we well, uh, oh, Jiffy's just dropped off. Uh, we seem mm-hmm. to be having some problems with people's audio. Uh, I was just saying that ends up the section that talks about uh, the the sort of middle part of uh, you know the British thing. And uh, I'm going to play one more clip, and we're going now to the American side, Benjamin, where you might feel on uh, you know more home ground. And the first one is psycho and then we'll jump towards the the more modern ones going towards rosemary's baby and omen and so on in 1960 a young woman was running away from something something that she shouldn't have done everything would have been fine if it hadn't been for her choice of accommodation After that, horror cinema and taking a shower would never be quite the same again. Psycho casts a long shadow over American horror cinema, and not just because of its shocking set pieces. Its commercial and critical success gave filmmakers permission to break the established rules of storytelling. You fancy killing off your lead halfway through the picture? By all means. Psycho promised to make the cinema a far more dangerous place, where anything could happen. And in actual fact, that might be a a thing to go back to this chart at this point. the, let me just read it out. Uh, this is a list of, um, uh, well, actually, it's got, uh, I hadn't realised, it's got uh, bottom-rated horror titles as well. Um, so let me just ask, um, let me just read this out and ask the people in the room uh, and people in text if they want to put out uh, any information. Let me read the, the bottom ten um, films, a lot of which I have never even heard of. Um, uh, the Weekend It Lives, uh, 1992. Dead at the Box Office, 2005. On a Dark and Stormy Night, 2010. Dire Wolf, obviously a dire film, 2009. Cannibal, 2007. Well, I've never heard of these. They obviously were, <laughs> obviously failed. Uh, Manos, The Hand of Fate, 1966. Um, Fenarg, and that's a euphemism, that word. Norge, 2004. Killing Twice, A Dead Hunter Chronicles, 2007, and Monster A Go-Go, 1965. Those are the 
bottom rated one and it's a pity we haven't got Rick Wall in the room uh, one of the cult and collective uh, if this is a show you've not listened to before uh, one of our uh, regulars is Rick Wall who's doing his own um, uh, it's called um, Rick's uh, Harrow House and they are uh, direct to DV half hour horror episodes that he's doing and uh, just to mention that Rick Wall does have a, a podcast by the way on Torchew and his uh, show ID is 74130 but it's a pity we haven't got Rick Wall with us today um, right let's go um, should I read these in reverse order from 50 upwards and um, then I'll ask anybody to make comments uh, 50 The Devils 1971 49 Dracula the 1931 version Wreck I don't know what that is 2007 Saw that you heard Benjamin mention before the 2004 one at 47 Hounds of the Baskervilles, what's that doing in there? I don't think so. Phantom of the Opera, 45, uh, 1929. The Wicker Man, which we just played a little bit of, came in at 44 in 1973. The Haunting, above that, it's 1963. Haxan, not heard of that, 1922. Uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1931. The Hour of the Wolf, 1968. Zombieland, 2009. Fists in the Pocket, 1965. Peeping Tom, 1960. Now, I actually, that's at, come at 37. I do remember seeing that at the cinema. That was a very scary film, I thought. Uh, without giving the whole plot away, it was a photographer who liked to take uh, very unusual pictures. He would uh, have models come up to his Soho uh, studio and they're thinking he wants to take sort of topless glamour pictures. But in actual fact, the tripod upon which his camera stands um, has a very sharpened point on one of the legs. And as he goes up to take their close-up, he brings that... <laughs> this sounds a bit of a euphemism, doesn't it? He brings that leg of the tripod up and he skewers them with it whilst taking their photograph. Uh, so he gets the, their grimace of death. So it really was... Um, uh, a very, um, well, uh, quite disturbing thing. That probably put me off seeing uh, horror films for quite some time. All right, Dead of Night came in at 36 from 1945. The Invisible Man, that's a Claude Rains version, I think, 1933. Island of Lost Souls, 1932. Uh, Day of Wrath, 1943. The Phantom Carnage, two th uh, 1921. Evil Dead 2, 1987. Now we're up to the top 30 now. Grindhouse, 2007. Eyes Without a Face, 1960. The Man Who Lasts, 1928. I can't pronounce the next one, so I'll skip it. Birds, 19, uh, number 26 from 1963. The Birds. The Unknown, 1927. Freaks, you heard me talk about that earlier on the show, was 1932. Repulsion, 1965. Halloween, which might be one of the ones we'll end up with, uh, came in at 22, and that's from 1978. The Innocents, 1961. Shaun of the Dead, that's a quite modern one, 2004. Um, Kawaiden, is that? 1964. Night of the Living Dead, 1968. Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Now, I did see that. That's a black and white one, and I assume they're talking about the original one. Yes, 1956 comes in at 16. Uh, whatever happened to baby Jane? Uh, I'll read what's in text in a minute. Um, 
Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, 1962. Bride of Frankenstein, 1935, came in at 14. Dawn of the Dead, 1978. Uh, Working Master Harmonies, don't know that. 2000, Faust, uh, 1926. And we're in the top 10 now. So I won't number them, I'll just go up. The Cabinet of Dr. Calgary, 1920. Frankenstein, 1931. Nosferatu, 1922. The Exorcist, 1973. Rosemary's Baby, uh, 1968. The Thing, uh, 1982. Uh, the Les Keys, I can't pronounce that, the French one, two, uh, 1955. The Top Three, uh, The Shining from 1980. Number two, Alien, uh, 1979. And they have Psycho at uh, number one from 1960. Let me read what's in the text. Howley, do you want to... Well, you're on mic, so do you want to read out what you put? Are you back with your mic? You put Shaun of the Dead. You might be self-muted. Okay, while we sort you out, let me play a clip about Rosemary's Baby, which was on that list. At the forefront of this new cycle of Hollywood horror was Paramount Pictures' Rosemary's Baby. Released in 1968, it's the story of a young couple who move into a New York apartment unaware that their elderly neighbours are Satanists. It was the first American picture by an acclaimed European director, Roman Polanski and it starred a fashionable young actress, Mia Farrow, as Rosemary, sporting an equally fashionable Videl Sassoon haircut. Rosemary's Baby had an interesting topical subtext about women's independence and control over their bodies, but it also served up a classic horror climax where some delicious dialogue helps Polanski get away with not actually delivering a shock reveal. He has his father's eyes. What are you talking about? Guys, eyes are normal. What have you done to him, you maniac? Satan is his father, not Guy. He came up from hell and begat a son of mortal woman. Hail Satan! Hail Satan! Satan is his father. Okay, and uh, I was just uh, looking at something in text. Yes, uh, the, the, the clips are from a three-part series called The History of Horror uh, with Mark Gatiss, uh, which was uh, on BBC, just ended. If uh, people are in the, B- in the UK, they can actually catch that still from um, the um, uh, BBC iPlayer. Um, and I'll put a link into a little page from the BBC4 uh, where if you scroll down the page, there's a question and answer uh, feature with Mark Gatiss. Uh, he's been quite the man of the moment recently because he did, uh, he's had his play or his adaption of the H.G. Wells' First Men in the Moon on TV just recently. And of course, he appeared as uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes's smarter brother in the Sherlock series that's just aired. And we now know he's going to get three more outings uh, maybe next year. Uh, Howley, I tried to get you on audio a minute ago. Is your audio fixed yet? Hello? 
You've joined Shaun of the Dead. Okay, Benjamin, uh, I've just gone through that list in very rapid order. Uh, has that reminded you of anything that we may have covered that we we well, feel as though we've... Yeah, yeah Shaun, you. Shaun of the Dead is one of the few films that I actually want to see late at night, I think. I remember that, yeah. was, a, that was definitely very... It was very funny. It was also very violent. Like He was really trying to make it an ultimate horror movie. So, yeah. Um, honey, they're discussing horror films. Do you want to come on and give a couple of your member? Uh, my, my wife's watching a film called Halloween High right now. She's she's watching a horror film marathon while I've been in here on a podcast about horror films. She yeah. thinks it's a Disney Channel horror movie. I just finished watching Orphan. That Orphan? Creepy. You're saying Orphan was creepy. Little girl who's looking 33 years old. Okay. Killing everybody. Okay. Mm. All right, well. So, do you want okay. to get on the show or not? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think Lisa doesn't want to come on right now, but. Uh, I know she. I tend to wind up seeing horror films that catch her interest for various reasons. Like the aforementioned Ginger Snaps. I think I saw. Yeah. But there, there were several on that list. I recall. Like obviously, like Shaun of the Dead. Yes. Uh, yeah. The Shining. Lisa was a fan. Of, Lisa was a fan of the scary movie franchise, which so definitely tried to. Mix the horror with the sci-fi. No, no, the horror with the comedy. Comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And of course, scary movies started its own thing where they just start going to other genres with better or success, like you might recall. Yeah. Like a, I haven't studied them too much. Now, I do know that uh, one guy who has been studying horror films a lot around here, Arnold Blumberg, known in Doctor Who circles. He used to be employed at the uh, Kepi's Museum in Baltimore. Like he, he was trying, he just published a book about zombies, I believe. And his stuff's pretty good to look up. But. Right. Uh, and while you're just doing that, for those people in text, I'm just putting links to Den of Geek, which did, uh, I put the second one in first, the review of um, the um, the Mark Gatiss thing. Uh I'm not sure whether they've done one on the third episode yet, but certainly those are two links, Den of Geek forward slash television, and it's the history of horror with Mark Gatiss, episode one review, Frankenstein goes to Hollywood. Okay, let me go to another one which has a Doctor Who alumni in it, because um, uh, the second Doctor, uh, Patrick Troughton, uh, had a part in The Omen, so let me play a clip from that. 1976 saw the arrival of what is arguably the first horror blockbuster. The film is, of course, the fantastic The Omen. When the Jews return to Zion and a comet rips the sky, and the Holy Roman Empire rises, then you and I must die. From the eternal sea he rises, creating armies on either shore, turning man against his brother, till man exists no more. The Omen purports to be based on biblical prophecy, but you'll struggle to find its most famous verses in the book of Revelation. 
They were a complete invention by writer David Seltzer. Seltzer uses the myth of the apocalypse to create a plot in which the American ambassador to London, played by Gregory Peck no less, adopts the Antichrist. Satan has determined to place uh, his child in a uh, position of political influence and power in the United States. He uses me, my wife Lee Remick, and me as, uh, as uh, vehicles, dupes, so to speak. And uh, we don't know that it's the devil's child. And uh, again, uh, some good music in that. It's being a good uh, omen, <laughs> get it, omen, for next week's show when we do sci-fi music in films. Um, now, I've, I've got lots of clips of, I've, I've skipped, but obviously we can't uh, raid this archive too much. It's uh, three one-hour episodes, and I've played sort of um, a dozen clips from it, so uh, I'm going to limit myself to just two more uh, and then we might have to wrap up because we have a, a, quite a number of people in the room, but there's only myself, Benjamin and Howley on microphone. So I'm going to play uh, two clips fairly quickly together, uh, and if no one else comes on mic, then I, I'll go back to those two uh, and we'll have our closing thoughts. I know that seems a little bit short, but, um, um, you know, if, these, uh, if this particular program interests you that much, then uh, please go and buy the DVD when it comes out on DVD. Or if you're in the UK, as I say, you can catch it from the BBC iPlayer. So I'm going to play two clips. One is um, uh, going... These only go up to about the 1980s at maximum. Uh, so I'll probably ask the people in the room about their, their most recent horror film that they feel is worth watching. Uh, and the two I'm going to play back-to-back, basically, are... Um, uh, from Dawn of the Dead, not Shaun of the Dead, and Halloween. So I'll play those two clips back to back. But zombies have now become A-list monsters. And the turning point was in 1978, when George Romero made a second groundbreaking zombie picture, Dawn of the Dead, that taught us to love The Walking Dead. I was so cowed by the things that have been written about Night of the Living Dead that for years I resisted doing another one. I didn't want to do another one which was just zombies in a little farmhouse. I thought that I needed some sort of a really central theme at the heart of it. And then I socially uh, knew the the, uh, people who developed uh, uh, this big shopping center. It was the first indoor shopping mall anywhere near Pittsburgh. Now they're on every street corner. I said, oh, here's something that I can really have a little fun with. What the hell is it? Romero's heroes take refuge in the mall, surrounded by ravenous zombies. The film is almost prophetic as a satire on quite literally mindless consumerism. Yeah, so Howley, you not be able to go to, well, we don't call them a mall, we call them shopping, I suppose we do. Anyway, let's go to the next clip. Stop watching on, David. 
Dawn of the Dead's blend of slapstick gore and social satire showed just how much horror films had evolved in the 1970s. But the shadow of Norman Bates was about to fall across small-town America in a film which went right back to basics. It's so lame to scare us out of our wits. Halloween. Made in 1978, it sees the murderous masked figure of Michael Myers stalk babysitters in the Midwestern town of Haddonfield, Illinois. It's one of the most convincing locales ever featured in a horror movie, but most of it was filmed by director John Carpenter in the Californian suburbs of South Pasadena. Okay, and um, uh, as I say, uh, I mean, I've, I've got plenty more clips, but I, I feel as though I've raided that bank more than perhaps I should have done and certainly reached the limit uh, from uh, the point of view of uh, having callers. For those people who are listening, we have got quite a number of people listening in the room to the live show. Um, uh, I realise that uh, it can be frustrating um, and I'll still not get that name. Or Lauren I-D-C-I. Sid will try and get on mic next week. And I know there are one or two other Zim Depot that, that do come regularly. Uh, so I'm going to ask Benjamin and Howley um, if there's anything that's been more recent that's caught their attention and whether listening to some of the background to this, because they seem quite actually listening to the Mark Gates the full show. It seems as though they're very pragmatic. Lots of the things that they did in horror stories were only down to the fact that they didn't have the money to do anything better. Um, uh, there's, there's one clip where um, uh, one of the directors says um, he said to his crew yes you can go and do outside broadcasts you can go as far away as you want and do filming as long as it's in, within walking distance and he didn't have to pay him to go on a train or a car to get there um, another one where they say that they used a, a particular house often in haunted house sequences it just happened to be the building next door that they rented out uh, and it was convenient uh, no more than that. And then, of course, they were when the Hammer House of Horror start to fade, uh, somebody thought, well, uh, you know, we'll do a Barbara Windsor here and pull the girl's top off. It might just keep them interested a bit longer. And then before you know it, it's, uh, you know, uh, virgin sacrifices on altars, uh, which is the, uh, the, ne- the call of the day. But uh, Benjamin and then Howley, I think we'd better wrap up. Otherwise, it's going to be me just uh, wittering on. Uh, till uh, the end. So, Benjamin, has your wife come up or suggested anything else to you? Or are there more uh, modern ones that... No, she's not really much for getting on right now. But uh, okay, I do think it is... A, one thing is, there are many types of horror, obviously. You've got the horror aimed at families, the horror aimed at adults, the horror aimed at teens. I, I think we... I think we tend to focus on the type of horror that we're into at the time. And so you have one group of people who think that horror is stuff like Saw and Captivity and things with lots of gore. You have others who, they like their horror, but it's in tiny little toast stuff like like the stuff that ABC Family and Disney are running this time of year, like Pocus Pocus we ran last night, where the idea of gore was Bette Midler, where cutting back her makeup. Uh, it's it, it has really... Pe- people sort of specialize these days to get the sort of horror they think they want. So, are we going to see something that has mass appeal again? Who knows? 
Mm. I, I think one of the, the, the if there's a, a failing at all of horror, uh, I do think it is the the, the the jump on board. You know, you have one zombie movie that does well, and you're almost scared that it does well because you know there are going to be ten more zombie movies made in the next five years. Um, I mean, there's been they have tried to break away from it. I mean. I don't know whether this Cloverfield is it that was made fairly recently. I thought it was supposed to be a remake of the old, you know, Japanese Godzilla type things. Um, and, and we we had the one, uh, what's the one in the the woods, the um, the one where they film with torches under their faces and that, um, the low budget ones. The Blair Witch Project. Blair, the Blair Witch one. Project. That, yeah, but again, you know, somebody does something like that, and then. For the next five years, everything seems to be in that same genre, doesn't it? Yeah, they did the Blair Witch Project 2 the very next year, only instead of doing this little indie flick that a couple people did over a few days, they got a big Hollywood studio in, spent a couple hundred million dollars on it, and right. realized <laughs> they didn't make the money back on the second one. Yeah, well, that Cloverfield was basically Blair Witch, wasn't it, really? I mean, the way it was... It was done in sort of ultra-realistic ways of ordinary people going about their life. I haven't actually seen it. I've only seen trailers. Let me go to um, to Howley T, and then uh, I think we, we will wrap up, if you'll forgive us. Howley. Um, yeah, I don't know I've got that much to add. I think horror is always one of those things that weirdly intrigues me, because I can never quite understand how other people can like it. But, you know, I've tried several times, and it just doesn't appeal to me. But I think that that's what uh, Benjamin was saying. I mean, you don't have to associate horror with gore. There are different types of horror. I mean, yeah, uh, even, even Darth even earlier on. Right. Yeah, okay. I don't well, do if you, jumpy, scary films very easily. All right. Well, if you like, if you like suspenseful films, go way back. Go and find Orson Welles and um, Edward G. Robinson in The Stranger. It's called, uh, and it's it's um, it's a Hitchcock one, and it's. Uh, very atmospheric. Um, uh, I don't know what to. It, it's, there's no. There's no monsters. Well, no unhuman monsters. Let's put it that way. Um, and it's about um, Edward G. Robinson hunting down um, uh, an alien, but not an alien from another planet. Uh, an American alien, um, somebody who's, uh, who's using an assumed identity, and um, it's a sort of cat and mouse game. But there's a lot of suspense in it. Uh, that, yeah, there's obviously Hitchcock's The Birds and uh, uh, Vertigo I mean Vertigo's not really a horror film but I mean if you like sort of the suspenseful thing go and see something like Vertigo yeah. I'll catch it on DVD okay well I'm going to um, wrap the show up at that point um, we, we we unfortunately seem to have run into the fact that everybody's gone out trick-or-treating uh, I know that's what Ian's had to do uh, and uh, we had one or two people's audio that dropped off and, and Tim that phoned in, thank you Tim uh, and all the people in the room so thank you Howley T for staying with us to the end thank you uh, Mr Benjamin Elliott uh, thank you for all the people that dropped in uh, and were here most of the show uh, Graham, uh, Six Doctor obviously, Logan uh, Darth, uh, Cybob uh, all the different guest numbers that we had from 5 through to 11 I think to um, ooh, uh, who have I left out? Olorin, IDIC, get it right, uh, and Zibnipot69, 
and I think if I miss anybody out, I apologise. And with that, I'm going to uh, find the outro and say, please join us next week when we're going to be doing about sci-fi music in films and TV. And thanks for joining us. Bye all. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.